Bibles, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 6 today. And we are continuing our study in one of the most important of all Bible passages. I know you hear me say that often. It seems like every time I get into the pulpit, I'm telling you that we're going to discuss some very important subjects. And well, it should be because we're looking into the inspired Word of God. And everything that God has to say has to be of monumental importance or he wouldn't have given us this book. So we don't want to miss what God has for us in his word. But we do understand that there are certain parts of the Bible that are more important to us on an everyday basis than other parts. Uh, For instance, I would much rather that you would know uh, the Gospel of John than you would know everything there is to know about the book of Numbers. And I suppose if you did know everything there was to know about Numbers in light of the New Testament, that you'd also know what there is to know in the book of John. But most of us really have not reached that particular place, and I can't say that I, that I have. And so there are certain parts of the Bible that we do pay more attention to. They're very important to us. And it couldn't really have been seen more clearly than what we have in the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew chapter 6, because here Jesus is talking about worship. And without going through all the sermons again that I've already preached on these, on these passages, I can tell you that prayer is considered by Jesus to be the most important form of worship. The subject of these first 18 verses in the chapter is worship, and prayer is given the most consideration. And some have said that prayer is man's highest spiritual exercise. I wouldn't dispute that evaluation. And when we look at this model prayer that Jesus gave in chapter 6, and we break this down, it is just really fascinating the spiritual depth we find in what Jesus said. Now, most people just read the prayer, and they recite the words, and they really don't know what's behind each of these statements. For example, we've talked about relationship in prayer and reverence in prayer. You have to have a relationship with the Father through Christ before you can pray, But there are some who recite the Lord's Prayer without really any understanding of what it even means to be born again. And then here we we see reverence for God's name. That's taught in the prayer. But there are so many people that use God's name in normal conversation. And they betray any idea that they understand what it means to keep God's name holy, as this prayer speaks of. God's rule over the world is seen in every life. And that's described in this prayer. Evangelism is taught in this prayer. And yet there are many people who just go their way and they do their own thing. And they never give a second thought about advancing God's kingdom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And on and on it goes. We can talk about all these different phrases that are in the prayer, and we will. And we break down each phrase because I want to show you what it means. Now, everything said here is so important, and it's... There's just so much depth in it that we could start this whole series of messages over again and we could look at the Lord's Prayer from a different angle and I could come up with other messages and we would preach the same, I mean, the same words over again, but we'd be talking about entirely different things. So we're going to read the prayer again today and we're going to take up another phrase and we're going to see what God would have us to understand from this statement, give us this day our daily bread. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse number 9, the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, verse number 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth 
as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and what we read here in the Lord's Prayer. These words that Jesus gave that are oh so important to us. Help us to understand a little bit better today what you would have us to know. Open up our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're breaking the Lord's Prayer down into eight different statements or areas of study. We've looked at our Father which art in heaven, and that is the relationship of prayer. Hallowed be thy name, that is the reverence of prayer. Thy kingdom come is the rule of prayer. And uh, thy will be done, that is the rapport of prayer. And today we're considering this next phrase, which is give us this day our daily bread. And that represents the resources in prayer. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to discuss repentance and righteousness, and then finally, we'll look at respect in prayer. But today, as we look at resources, we we come to the second division of the Lord's Prayer. The first division is called Thy Petitions, the Thy Petitions, and that's because the first three petitions contain the word Thy. And they're all about giving God due consideration for uh, as the first order of business when we come to God in prayer. Then next are the our petitions, and this is where we speak of God on a, uh, to God on a personal level about the things that we need, our, our personal needs and our corporate needs. And so there are three of these our petitions, and they cover the whole being of man. They have to do with his physical state, his mental state, and his spiritual state. And what we can't do is that we can't reverse the order of these petitions. Prayer is prioritized as God first and then us. And when you honor God first with the thy petitions, then you'll also be able to honor him with the our petitions. And so we begin with this first our petition, which is give us this day our daily bread. Now, if you just look at that statement and you pass over it lightly, you are going to miss the real meaning of this because... Uh, asking for our daily bread is something that is really not too important to most of us. I don't know the financial condition of every person that's in the room, but I doubt very seriously that there's any of us here that are so poor that we're actually wondering or seriously concerned about where our next meal will come from. In America, we have a super abundance of food, we produce so much food that we spend or send a lot of it overseas. Sometimes we are in danger of producing so much food that the government tells the farmers to stop growing crops. Sometimes they, they buy up the crops that, that are produced in order that we don't flood the market with so many different types of things that actually prices become depressed. And so there is so much food that instead of praying that God would give us our daily bread, what we're actually asking God for today is to please help me stay on a diet. Help me to stop eating. I'm overeating. It's killing me. And statistics have shown that American people are the most obese people in the world. We're the most overweight. Uh, Doctors are very concerned about this, that our children are becoming overweight and our, our lifestyles are simply unhealthy. And so it's not that we are undernourished. We are so overnourished that we've actually become malnourished. And the truth is that Americans could do with a lot less than what we have. And so then to pray for food, for most of us, we think that's a waste of time. 
even the poor among us that are genuinely concerned about where they would get their next meal is, are few and far between. If you look even at the homeless people today, not many of them are actually starving to death. They're not dying of malnutrition. There are far more of them that die of drugs and alcohol than would ever die of not having enough food. And so we don't see conditions in America such as exist in other places of the world like the Sudan where people are starving to death, where children's bellies are, are swollen because of worms. It's not like that in America. But with the superabundance that we have, I would still submit to you that there's anybody who really needs to know what this means, give us this day our daily bread. It would be people in this very room. Now, in Jesus' time, the, the next meal that people received was often a real concern. Uh, there was no middle class at that time. You were either rich or you were poor. And so there were many people who actually were looking for their next meal, and they were struggling to find that. In Jesus' ministry, there were people that followed him around at times looking for a handout, looking for a meal, and sometimes Jesus provided that for them. And those people really thanked God for their food, and they depended upon God for food because they might not get another meal. So why do I say that we actually need this probably more than they? Well, I think it's because with all of the abundance that we have, we have forgotten where it comes from. We've forgotten how that God has blessed us so much and he's provided with so much. And instead of thanking God for our food, we have actually come to the place where we believe that it is our right to have food and that is owed to us. I think about what happened a few years ago with uh, Hurricane Katrina. And that was a terrible disaster. And there were many people that were suffering because of that. And I know that what I'm going to tell you next is not a politically correct statement. But I was appalled when I read in the paper some of the things that were going on in the city of New Orleans and how people were so unthankful, people that weren't grateful, people that weren't uh, asking and thankful for their relief, but instead they acted like things were owed to them and they were angry about it and they were uh, mad that somebody wasn't taking care of them. And I think that there were many of those people who weren't thankful at all. They were just mad that the government didn't step in immediately And so they weren't grateful about what they got. Uh, People did help, and people were called on to help. And and I don't think that there are a lot of people that were actually grateful for what was given to them. Instead, they thought that as Americans, it was their right to have these things. And they weren't at all ashamed to demand their rights that they should have food and all the things that go along with that to be taken care of. But things were far different in Jesus' time. A famine would come, and there was no relief from it. They didn't pray to the government because the government wouldn't help them. They had to go to God, and they had to expect that God would give, and they had to be thankful for every little bit that they received. And if you want to know the truth of it, it wasn't until Christianity came along, until uh, the, the apostles and Jesus began to teach that we are to take care of one another, that anyone ever seriously thought that anyone was going to help them. One of the things that Paul did was that he uh, organized relief efforts among the churches so that when there were saints in Jerusalem that were suffering and they were starving to death and they were under oppression, that Paul would take offerings from the Gentile churches in Asia and they would send offerings to Jerusalem to help those people. And we know that today there are many people who do know that they can count on churches, that they can go there to find the help that they need. A godless society does not do that. 
And that's why that you find America is always up front. America is always the first of all the nations of the world to go and help people when there is a disaster. But by and large, we have forgotten God. We've just become self-sufficient. We, we grow so much food and we produce so much that we've come to the place that we think that it's us. We think it's our technology, and that's the reason that we have all that we have. My parents were from Kansas, and one of the things that I really liked to do when I was young, I like, I like to go to Grandma's house, and I especially like to go during the months of July and August, and, that, and that's because that was the time of the wheat harvest. And you would go to Kansas, and you could really see what, what the song says, America the Beautiful, when it talks about the amber waves of grain. Because you would watch the wind blow across the prairie, and you would see the waves of grain rippling across there. And it was just a beautiful sight. All of the towns in, in around that country are dotted with these huge grain elevators where they take and they store all of the food. When they plow the ground, you would see huge tractors that would pull a plow that's 100 feet across, and they would plow massive amount of ground, uh, ground at one pass. And when they harvested the grain, they're able to do in one pass what it used to take three different operations to do. So now they can reap the wheat, they can bind it, and they can thresh it all in one operation. And millions of people are fed by all of this grain that we produced. And we're, we're just so blessed to be in America. We have so much, and yet we don't stop to thank God for what we have. Now, whether that is one stalk of grain that's threshed by hand, or whether it's millions of stalks of grain that are done all at one time, the ability to do so comes from God. God is the one who makes the wheat grow. And this is really a lesson that all of us need to learn. So... That's where I really want to start today. Uh, it's going to take a couple of weeks to get through this and to help us better understand how important this phrase is, give us this day our daily bread. So here's where I think that we should start. We should start with the source of our resources. Now that's as far as we're going to get today. I want to talk about the source of our resources, that God is the one who provides everything that we have. Now, that seems like such an elementary thing. I mean, do we really have to remind Christians today that God is the one who gives us everything? Everything comes from his hand? Well, I think that we do. And so we need to back up to the beginning, and I want us to see what God has promised. God has promised food. So let's look at that. Food from God. God created man, and he put man on the planet. And before man was ever created, God had already put everything in place for his resources concerning food. Now, I'm mainly dealing with food right now, but I want you also to be aware that all of the minerals that God has put into the earth, God put there for a purpose. Whenever we make things that, that help us and to better our lives, we take from the earth, and God is the one who put all of the resources there so that we could have those things. Likewise, God gave us water. He sends rain to water the crops. Water is essential for our bodies. We have to drink water. And without getting all ecological and green on you right now, we do have a responsibility to maintain clean water and not to abuse our resources. God expects that we are to be good stewards of everything that he's entrusted us with. Now that takes us to the original command, and that scene in the original command that was given to Adam. So I want you to turn to the book of Genesis, if you would, please, back to chapter 1 that we read just a few moments ago. And we're going to read a few verses here. 
And if you look at chapter 1, you'll see what was in the mind of God concerning man's dominion over the earth. Man's dominion is his stewardship. God gave man the responsibility of taking care of this earth. Now, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse number 26, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Now, if you look at verse number 28, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now, there we see that Adam's dominion was over the fish, and over the birds, and animals. And that was, first of all, Adam was given that dominion so that the animal kingdom would not outpace man and then become a ruling kingdom. It's interesting that when Joshua conquered Canaan, that the progress was slow. And that's so that the Canaanites were not killed in such large numbers that the wild beasts would actually overrun the land. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 22, it says, And the Lord thy God will put out those nations before thee by little and little. Thou mayest not consume them at once, lest the beast of the field increase upon thee. And there we see that the animal kingdom was put in in subjection to man, and we ought not to think that any of it actually has priority over man. A man's rule eventually led to the right to eat the animals. God provided them for food and for our clothing. And so don't be ashamed to wear your fur coat and your alligator cowboy boots. God gave that to you. Now now look again, if you would, in, in chapter 1 there in verses 29 and 30 in Genesis. It says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree, and the which is the fruit of the tree, yielding seed to you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And then if you'll flip over to the second chapter in verse number 9, it says there, And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God has given man the earth and given us the right to subdue it, and God is the one who gave man his food to eat. Now, all of that seems very elementary to us. I mean, to think God put man upon the earth, he gave him what he needed, and he told man, he said, go out and be fruitful and multiply. And so it stands to reason that if God said to man, go be fruitful and multiply, that God would give him whatever he needed so that he could be fruitful and multiply. Now, friends, that was true in the very beginning, and I promise you the very same thing is true today. And yet, if we survey the world, we see nations, we see countries where there are many starving people. And we were always hearing about a population explosion, and and we're told that the earth is not going to be able to sustain so many people. And so we just have the assumption that man eventually is going to exhaust all of the resources that are on the earth, and then this world will come to an end. And so we worry about things like global warming and how the world's going to be destroyed by that. A few years ago, we worried about global cooling, and so everybody would stop piling fur coats to keep warm because they thought we were going into an ice age. But let me make something very clear to you. Man is not going to destroy the earth. 
Now, man can make it harder on himself, but he's not going to destroy the earth. But do you know what happens when people turn their backs on God and they ignore God and the true God of the Bible? Do you know what happens when they ignore the one who created all things? What happens is that the source of the resources are moved out of the picture and then man begins to mess things up and people begin to starve. Now, a classic example of that would be in India. There's enough land in India and enough resources there that it would support all of their population, but much of that country is starving and lives in some of the worst poverty of the world. Do you know what the culprit is? The culprit is religion. The people have lived under the influence of religions like Hinduism that has so many gods that they believe that God is actually present in the animals. Did you know this, that 30% of all the cows in the world live in India? Now, can you imagine what a staggering number that is? 30% of all the cows in the world live in India. And yet in India, in many of the cities, killing a cow and eating the meat is strictly forbidden. And so there are families that starve to death while a cow walks in and out of their front yard without a care in the world. They don't kill the cows because they believe that God is in those cows. Now that's what happens when you dishonor the true God of the Bible. When you don't glorify him, we don't get his resources. And so God is dishonored and that forces people into poverty and oppression. And so India suffers because of the backward nature of religion because what they do is exactly what the God of the Bible forbids and that is they worship the creature more than the creator. And what that does is that it affects the economy of the nation from the top to the bottom. Now, likewise, you can look at Haiti. The recent earthquakes have really, earthquake there has really brought out some interesting facts about religious life in that country. I was reading in the paper not long ago that one of the most troubling aspects of that earthquake to the Haitian people was their inability to bury their dead. And the newspaper said that they, most of the people there spend more money on burial crypts than they do on their houses. So their religion teaches them that they need to stay in contact with their ancestors. They have to keep up with the dead and they have to keep the spiritual connections alive because if they, if they don't, that's all going to be lost. And so you have people that think what they have to do is they have to convene with the dead and they take the resources that they could have that could be spent on their food and their shelter and they channel that into lavish burial plots. Then you can also look at what Islam has done. I'm sure you can talk with Eric Hill, who just came back from Afghanistan, and he was telling me that the people there live in the Stone Age. And that's because the worship of a false god retards progress. A false god makes oppressors out of a few people, and those who live in those civilizations will never realize the fullness of the earth because they have dishonored the true creator. And he's the one who promised that he would provide for man. Now, let's back that up and take a look at America. I believe that democracy cannot survive without true Christianity. The more that the people of America get away from God and the more secularized and humanistic that we become, the more that we forget the source of our resources, the closer that we are going to get to the failure of what our founding fathers called the Great Experiment. You see, our leaders today don't recognize the threat of Islam in our country. 
They don't realize that Islam is growing, or at least they act like they don't, and that we just keep pushing Christianity to the side and pushing it out of American life. And the more that we do, the more that we make room for it, the more that the resources of America are going to dry up. You see, God made America great because there was preaching from the pulpits that honored God and honored Him first, and they recognized that God is the source of our resources. And the further that we get away from that, the more that our people are going to suffer because it's simply true, and it's seen in all the places of the world, that God will not sustain a godless society on the level that we're living. Now, you see how all that ties together? God has to be glorified, and it works in such a way that it works its way all the way down the food chain, so to speak, to every person that's in this room. Give us this day our daily bread is not so simple when you start looking into the implications of not recognizing the source. And so you can't take the food that's on your table for granted. And that's why I say we probably need this lesson more than those people did in the day of Jesus. Now, let's look at one more piece of this concerning the source, and this is concerning the favor of God. Now, I hope that you do this. Uh, I I make it a practice that I bow my head and I pray before my meals. I'm careful to do that. But I have to confess to you that sometimes I just mumble the words. It becomes a habit, and I really don't think very much about it. And if you're honest about it, I think that you would say that thanking God for your food and asking God for food really doesn't mean much to us most of the time. I remember when uh, Pastor Cregan was here that sometimes we would go out for lunch, and when he would pray, I always liked what he said. He would always say this, We sincerely thank you for every bite of this food. You know, that's a great attitude when you pray before a meal recognize that God is the source. And if God wanted to, he could withhold all of that. A snap of his fingers and it's all gone. Well, I could spend a lot more time today and talk to you about how Americans in general are not thankful people. But these lessons that we're giving on the Lord's Prayer are to teach God's people how to pray. Now, we've already established in the very beginning that in order for a person to pray, he must have a relationship with Jesus Christ he must know him as Savior, and that, that relationship has to be established with God as Father. That has to exist before you can pray. You must know Jesus as Savior and be born again. So I think, really, that I need to continue in that vein today. So I am speaking to God's people. And if you don't know Christ this morning, you need, perhaps, to catalog the information away that I'm giving you, and you need to deal with that issue first. Don't worry about anything else until you understand that you have to know Jesus before you can pray. So the messages that I'm giving are primarily for Christians. And it's Christians who must realize the favor of God because God has bestowed special favor upon his people. What you receive comes from the divine hand because God has special favor upon his children. Now, in a sense, we can say that God is benevolent over all of his creation, and that would be absolutely true. God is a great benefactor for everyone, and that's what we call God's common grace. But God's common grace is not his saving grace. And for those who are his children, there is this special favor that God gives. Paul expressed it this way in 1 Timothy 4. He said, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. 
You know, I've been over this verse several times in the past few months, so I'm not going to give you all the theological implications of it right now. But I want you to just notice the first, the, how the first part states this, Savior of all men. Now, that may refer to the common grace of God. And the other part, especially of those that believe, to the added, added benefit of saving grace. So all of us receive God's common grace, but those who are children of God, who have trusted Christ as Savior, they receive saving grace. And when you have received saving grace, you come into such a special relationship with God that he considers your chi- you his child, and then God gives you special favor that no one else gets. If you look at Israel, for 1,500 years, God dealt with no other people like he did with Israel. They had his special favor. And that's what you get when you become a Christian. Now, I want you to notice particularly that I do say the word favor. Because when you talk about grace and favor, you have to understand that you do not deserve anything that you get. Neither physically or spiritually do we deserve anything. And you get it, you are shown favor only for one reason, and that is the favor is for Christ's sake and not yours. And I think that we can see that in the first hour petition. Notice that Jesus says, give us. And, and if you get nothing else from the message today, be sure you take this home, that give us is asking for favor. That's not a demand. Give us means that you go to God with nothing in your hand, and you come to him with no rights, except that you have this privilege of prayer that's been granted only on the basis of Jesus Christ. And so if you ever think that give us is an imperative, and that's not the humiliation of an undeserving sinner who's asking for divine favor, then not only will you not receive God's blessings, but I'm warning you, you are tempting God's wrath. Now, for most of you, I think you do understand this. You understand that God has given us divine favor. We really aren't deserving. And God has promised you favor, but you don't have any right to make any demands. Now, perhaps you do understand that, but there's a whole lot of people, a whole lot of people that are very mixed up on this because they have been lied to. You see, there's a material gospel out there that's being preached today, and they take this petition of the Lord's Prayer, and they stand Jesus' teaching on its end, and they say that if you are God's child, then you have every right to demand your blessing. Now, if you're a kingdom kid or whatever what they want to call that, they say that God has endowed you with such special rights to the kingdom that there's no reason why you shouldn't just bop God on the nose when you pray and make demands. You get his attention. You tell God what you want, and you demand it. Now, that's what we call today this name-it-and-claim-it theology. And it says that God is not really the one who grants favor, but actually that God has made you into a little God and that you have as much power as God himself to speak things into existence. Now, I know that they use a lot of the same terms that I use. They'll speak a lot about grace and about being granted favor by God. But what they really mean in effect is that that you have taken over God's position. And if you have enough faith that you can actually take what is God's work and you can make it your own and you can get whatever you want. And so you actually grant to yourself because you can harness the Holy Spirit and you can ride him as long as you want to make your wildest wishes come true. Now, you can see that very closely allied to that and naturally develops from it is what we call a prosperity gospel. And that is the teaching that you have the right to demand and expect health, wealth, and prosperity. You can demand it. 
And so according to them, God's will, thy will be done, is that no Christian should ever suffer hardship, no Christian should ever be poor, no Christian should ever have bad health, no Christian should ever struggle. And if a Christian does, it's because his faith is lacking. You haven't claimed what's rightfully yours. Now that, folks, is a messed up, convoluted bunch of nonsense. It's one of those, as I've told you before, has a great theological term for it, and we call it hogwash. And yet there are so many people that are sucked into that because it sounds so good. And you know why? Because it's the desire of every single person to please their flesh. And if you can give me something or tell me that I have the right to demand something, if I have the right to be wealthy, then you're going to be sure. I want to know about that. And that's why people are are just sucked into it. Now, what is that? That is actually man worship. And what it is, it's humanism wrapped up in evangelicalism rather than atheism. Now, if you are actually the ultimate and the universe centers in you, then there's no need to ask God for any favor. You don't need to ask for benefits because you can demand it if the universe is created for you. Well, let me tell you again why God should bestow any favor upon you. We've already said this. First of all, it is because of Christ. And the only reason that God benefits you as his child is because the glory comes back to him. You see, if you're a Christian, you're praying rightly and you're not demanding. That's when God is always front and center. And so when God gives a blessing, we stand back in awe and amazement and we simply say, to God be the glory. God intends that food comes your way and blessings come your way. And when God answers a prayer, he intends that you don't grab that and you say, well, I've got my due. But rather that you humbly thank him because what God has done is he's put his great characteristics of kindness and gentleness and compassion on display. God is the source and his favor has been richly bestowed upon us. And he does that because God wants to prove who he is. Now, that statement, if you are a child of God, even that statement ought to send you reeling. Who is God that he should have to prove himself to us? And yet, isn't that exactly what the Word of God said that God has been doing all along? In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The word commendeth means demonstrated. It means God has proved this. God wants you to know who he is. He wants to be recognized as the one who should receive the glory. And so if you want me to put it to you another way, you get to eat because God wants to be glorified. And if you turn that around and you try to make it about you and you demand from God, then you glorify yourself and not him. And if you deserve these things as a kingdom kid, then what we need to do is stand back and applaud you and let God watch us as we do it. But this is God's favor. That's why we get what we get. Give us this day our daily bread is not an imperative. What God gives is an act of his goodness, not because he owes it. And you don't get it because you demand it. If that's true then the source of God's motivation for giving to us does not then come within his own benevolent nature. It actually comes because you're the one who has the right to be honored. Now, you very easily ought to see how such a system as that would destroy prayer. And in the process, worship goes tumbling to the ground. And so you will not find in any of these eight statements about prayer that there's anything here that will allow you to bless yourself or to share in even one grain of God's glory. Paul said, 
Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Now you see that? I hope that's sinking into you today. Give us this day our daily bread cannot be skipped over as insignificant. Every bite of food that you take is a display of God's glory. Now let me finish with this. Uh, We're going to come back to this next week, and there's a lot more that I have to say about this. We've only got a small part so far. But I want to close the message today with a a word to unbelievers. The the Lord's Prayer is for believers. And as, as I've already said, I'm preaching to Christians today. But I don't want to forget a part of the prayer that precedes this, because Jesus prayed, Thy kingdom come. And that's actually the evangelistic part of the prayer. Christ's kingdom is increased whenever a a soul, whenever a lost sinner receives Christ as his Savior, he comes into the kingdom of God, and God's kingdom increases. Now, as much as I believe in the sovereign, electing uh, grace of God, I also do believe that not one person will ever be saved unless he hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and believes it. Now, I don't want to leave anybody out today because there might be someone here this morning that you don't know Christ as your Savior. The gospel of Christ is that Christ died for sin, that he paid the penalty of sin on the cross for everyone who believes. And then Jesus went into the grave, and on the third day he arose from the grave, and the resurrection is God's validation. That's God's stamp of approval on the ministry of Jesus Christ. And everything that Jesus said has validity because of this fact that Jesus arose from the dead. So the gospel of Christ says that if you will believe, you come into God's kingdom. And that's when you have the right to call on God as your father. And that's when you have the right to pray. Because then you've been forgiven of all of your sins. And then you come into the fellowship of God for all of eternity. Everlasting life actually begins with the belief of the gospel of Christ. And then when you die, you go into heaven and there you feast on the bread of life forever and ever. Now, today we'll have people that are standing by after the service that will be happy to talk with you if you desire. If you want to learn more about Christ, if you want to learn more about baptism or membership in Berean Baptist Church, we're happy to discuss all of those things with you. I don't want you to leave today still lost without Jesus. You need to recognize God is the one who provides. God is the one who sustains life. And by trusting and believing in him, not only does he sustain your physical life, but God also promises eternal life. And that's the greatest blessing that you'll ever receive from God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow before you today, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for what Jesus said. Give us this day our daily bread. May you help us to recognize that everything that we have comes from you. May we never be lazy and lax about thanking you for what we have. We deserve nothing. We deserve no favor from you. But you are the great God who promised that you would take care of us. And I do pray for people, Lord, that have have pushed you out of the picture and are not concerned at all about false religions and about things that are going on in America. And may we be able to see that the more that we push you out of our lives, the more that the resources that you have, been, have promised to us will be taken away from us. And we could very quickly become just like any other nation of the world without God that starves to death because we don't have the resources that we need that you promised to supply. Lord, this is all cured, we do believe, by coming to faith in Jesus Christ 
Now, I just ask you, Lord, you'd speak to some soul today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.